0: what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions thank you for joining us in this episode of the fundraising talent podcast here's your host author fundraiser and master trainer jason lewis
1: hi podcast listeners my name is jason lewis and i am your host for the fundraising talent podcast before i introduce today's guest i do want to thank our sponsor QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close Bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the responsive fundraising roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high quality one day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands down the the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Madge. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You're the Executive Director at uh, Mission Capital in Austin, and you're hosting our event uh, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow here in a couple of weeks. And I'm just delighted that uh, Marie and Michelle grabbed, grabbed your attention and said, hey, hop on the podcast here with Jason for a little, bit, little, little while so that you and I could get to know each other. So I'm really delighted that we're on here to have a brief conversation. Madge, before we dive into our topic of conversation, how about I just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Jason. It's uh, great to spend the afternoon with you. Um, yes, I'm Madge Vasquez. I have the privilege of uh, leading Mission Capital, uh, which is a nonprofit based in Austin, Texas. Um, that is a nonprofit capacity builder and consultant. We're also a membership organization that really serves the nonprofit ecosystem here in Austin. So I like to say, um, you know, we're we're the guide on the side for our nonprofit organizations as they are experiencing leadership transitions and inviting their next leader to lead, as they are thinking about strategic planning and revenue modeling to help them be stronger. Um, we also um, do collective impact. So we will be the uh, convener that comes and brings together uh, a coalition of nonprofits around a common issue. And so we backbone uh, collective impact initiative. So it is a delight uh, to be with you all this afternoon to talk about what's on every, you know, nonprofit ED CEO's mind. And that's fundraising, how uh, to garner resources for uh, to fuel our mission.
1: Yeah, Madge. So when Michelle, uh, when Michelle reached out to me, I don't know, that was probably a good month or two ago. And she said, Hey, why don't you kick off your roadshow schedule in, uh, in Austin? Um, in in, in, in a town like Austin, that's, that's already sort of already. Sort of pretty high on the list. Yeah, that's a great town to do that. But then when she said Mission Capital's interested in doing that, I spent like I I, I had to have spent probably forty-five minutes going all over your website, getting to know your people. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is just like, this is a winner. Um, I couldn't have been more excited. So I spent a lot of time on your website. Madge, before we dive into our topic of conversation. Can you just, you're, you're, you're not a startup organ. Your organization's been around a while. Would you mind just sort of telling that? What's sort of the story behind the organization?
2: Yeah, great question, Jason. We, uh, um, we're we delighted that we just celebrated our 20th anniversary last year. Uh, so we're, we're a little, we're now 21 as a nonprofit organization. You're an and adult we were, now, right? We are, we're an adult. <laughs> That's right. We were going off to college. And, uh, <laughs> and um, we were started by what I, I love to fondly call a group of godmothers uh, in the community who um, really, uh, they were community volunteers, board members of different nonprofits. And they had identified a gap, um, which was, you know, just having a nonprofit hub that would serve nonprofits and help them uh, be more effective, resilient and sustainable over time. And so that's how we were created. Um, And there are other groups like us across the country, like Mission Capital, but each independent who provide that kind of nonprofit management support and leadership support to um, to our, our region's nonprofits.
1: And you haven't, how long have you been there and why does this, uh, why does this resonate? Connect, connect, if you don't mind, connect your story with their story for me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so um, I have been uh, serving as CEO of Mission Capital uh, now um, coming up on five years. Okay. And I'm the third um, CEO in the organization's history. I am the first woman of color to lead Mission Capitals. We had our founder, uh, Deborah Edwards. We had uh, my predecessor, Matt Curry, who served almost a decade, really scaling our nonprofit work on the consulting side and some of the collective impact side. and um, in 2018, um, as the, the board was getting ready to invite its next and third CEO, uh, the board and staff were at a, a moment in our organizational life where they felt that equity was important. Um, I don't think any of us really knew what that meant at that time. Um, and this was pre-George Floyd, pre brianna Taylor, pre-national racial reckoning um, in the world and in the United States. And um, I heard that, um, kind of mission commitment and aspiration really clearly when I was interviewing at Mission Capital. And, and I felt having been a nonprofit professional and having worked in the private sector as well, having worked in uh, private sector consulting and banking, and then spending a lot of my time in the nonprofit sector, both as staff and a board member, um, I felt like that Commitment really resonated with me, and so I joined Mission Capital in January of 2018. We set uh, a bold racial equity vision, and again, this was before um, you know the social sector and philanthropy had um, had decided to be really supported and explicit about racial equity. So we were a couple of years ahead of that, um, and started really thinking about what does that mean for our work? What does it mean for us to show up in a way that centers? Uh, racial equity in a community like Austin, Texas, um, in, in, and in a state like Texas. And so fast forward to now, we've been um, really supporting our nonprofits um, through this pandemic moment, right? It's, I, I like to say the not quite post pandemic moment, um, yeah. where all of us are really leaning into this opportunity uh, to take care and, and support our communities in a way that acknowledges that um, our communities possess the solutions, right? There's a shift from kind of the traditional charity to solidarity um, that we've been trying to usher in um, as an organization supporting nonprofits, acknowledging we don't have all of the answers, uh, but we're here to support shoulder to shoulder with our nonprofit organizations and the communities and, and constituents that they serve.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting time to be, or let me say this, it or pose it as a question. It has to be an interesting time to be in the state of Texas, watching with the midterms coming up, with the upcoming elections, with the governor's race, with some of the tragedies that you've recently um, encountered. I've had some of these conversations very briefly with Michelle. Um, it, it, it's an interesting time to be in Texas. Am I right?
2: It is. It certainly is. Yes. And that's why our focus at Mission Capital is is really timely. And so as I was sharing under our kind of strategic vision and mission, you know, we set three explicit goals. The first one was to close the racial leadership gap in our social yeah. sector. Yeah. And um, and the second one is to increase organizational resilience and sustainability of the sector. And the third is to really expand collaborative networks, kind of like what we're doing with you and, and your group today. Um, you know, when we think about that first goal of closing the racial leadership gap, we partnered with a national group group called the Building Movement Project, and they do a series of studies on um, what does the what's the state of the union of the nonprofit sector? You know, what what do those executive ranks look like? Yes. And yeah, so we partnered with them to to help us study like what does Austin, Central Texas, look like? And lo and behold, it looks very much like the rest of the country. And the data says that um, less than 20% of our region's nonprofits um, are led by people of color, though the vast majority of our nonprofits serve communities of color. And so there's that disconnect there, right, in representation and lived experience and really relationship, uh, deep relationship with community. So we took the, the that study, the data, and thought about how can we help activate those data findings in a solution-oriented way? What we know is that there are plenty of qualified and able and ready leaders of color uh, who are ready to lead um, nonprofits. What we know from the data is that there are barriers to entry of leadership because those boards and search committees may not reflect the communities that they serve and and may not have those connections with those leaders. We also know that the data says that um, BIPOC-led nonprofits are woefully undercapitalized. They don't have the same access to phila- philanthropy and, and donor networks. Um, and then third, we also know the data says that they might not have the same access to mentorship opportunities and, and our networks are a little bit of, a little bit smaller. And, and I say that as a woman of color, uh, a Latina, fifth generation, uh, Mexican-American Texan here, um, uh, living and working in Central Texas. And so um, we really you know, activated those data findings and used it to co-design and co-create some programmatic offerings specifically for BIPOC CEOs and executive directors so that we could come together and support one another and solution together. And so we've been doing that now um, for the last about year and a half. And it's been um, a really uh, beautiful community uh, gift um, to be able to support those leaders.
1: We've had some interesting conversations, uh, on the podcast recently. I, I can think of several that sort of swung, basically they, they were, we were sort of posing the question of, 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 um, women and people of color, assuming leadership roles. And then what does a white guy like me, what does a fellow like me, what's the role that I play? And I, you know, Madge, one of the things that someone said to me recently which really got me thinking which is why I think which is why collaborations like this get me really excited was wasn't this idea of me just completely getting out of the way um it wasn't the idea of me just sort of abandoning the table um but it, there there were some uh, and I'm I'm sort of I'm blending probably a number of thoughts together but uh I'm curious if I'm the if I'm the average white guy who's privileged with a number of contacts in a city like uh, Austin, what am I doing at Mission Capital? Mm-hmm. What, are you, what are you saying to me if I knock on the door tomorrow?
2: I'm recruiting you.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I appreciate exactly. That.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm talking uh, to help us right in our mission. It, it really does take all of us, and yeah. um, and that's actually yeah. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned this, Jason, because that's one of the You know, the the threads of work that I feel is really important that we don't often talk about. And that's the power of allyship. And so um, it's really important for um, white folks, professionals, donors, um, board members, staff to think about their own um, racial equity muscles and their own journey and acknowledging and courageously, um, you know, calling in moments Uh, When white dominant culture may not be serving us uh, and may not be benefiting the community and really modeling that in a powerful way. And so I actually believe um, that, you know, in the fundraising space, that fundraisers have an incredible opportunity uh, to to really flex that allyship, um, you know, with with their with their executives, with their boards, with their donors.
1: Yeah, we've had a number of uh, women of color in particular been guests on the podcast and they have really helped me as a guy who's genuinely trying to sort of always trying to figure out my place in the world, I guess you might say, uh, you know, trying to sort of figure out where I, uh, you know, with somebody who has a platform and has influence and has yeah. has friends, um, you know, what do I do? Uh, and obviously, as you can imagine, this collaboration with you and with Michelle and others um, is certainly um, it's a, it's a, it's an affirmation of perhaps I'm learning some of the stuff I'm supposed to be learning. Um, Madge, we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. I always sit back and say, okay, what do you want to talk about? Um, sometimes I know what we're going to talk about. Sometimes I don't. But uh, we let you take the conversation in any direction you'd like to. What do you got for us today?
2: Yes. Well, based on the mission that I've just described at Mission Capital, I think my uh, the big idea or the bold question is more of a curious question, and that is, what if our philanthropic institutions, our corporate foundations, our fundraising professionals, donors and nonprofit EDs reflected the communities we serve? What would that look like and what would it feel like? How would the world be different?
1: Yeah, so uh, Madge, I teach a class over at the local college. I teach two sections of our nonprofit management course uh, in the spring. So I just mm-hmm. finished, uh, and I and I'll be asking that same question uh, here in our in our community here in central Pennsylvania. That's one of those questions that we've asked the students. You know, I'll have thirty or forty students in one of those sections, and um, and we wrestle with what is that? What if the organization? In its various different forms, actually looked like who it served. So, what do you think?
2: Hmm. Yeah, I think it would be really powerful, um, and I think it would be inclusive. That's the other part. I, you know, I, I think there has been um, kind of a legacy conversation of. Uh, and you just brought it up too of the us versus them, right? It's either yes. you're, you're white or BIPOC. And, and, and what we haven't spent enough time working on and talking about is this importance of inclusion and belonging. And that is a daily practice and invitation to recognize each person and, um, and their racial identities, everything that they bring to the table, their lived experience and think about How together, you know, we can build this really inclusive and powerful uh, group of advocates and professionals in the sector. And so that's something that we at Mission Capital have been um, talking about for a long time. And again, um, trying to practice ourselves, if that makes sense.
1: I had a guest on here talking about a a, sort of a similar vein of conversation. And um, there were a couple of points in the conversation where I felt like where where I felt like we didn't have an answer to this question. Like we we had not perhaps explored this enough and we didn't have enough, um, you know, the sector hadn't had enough success. We didn't have enough case studies, I guess, is what I'm saying. We didn't have enough examples of where we've answered that question in a positive, affirmative, affirmative way. Um, what does this look like? What is, a, what is an organization that truly serves the community? What is, in your mind, what does that look like?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I'm just thinking of some of our clients, um, yeah. that we serve and, and folks who have gone through some really incredible transformations. And I, I think about our organization at Mission Capital as well, um, and how we've worked really hard and continue to learn and, and, uh, and, and unlearn, as we like to say. Um, but for example, like if I just took Mission Capital as a case study, you know, when we, um, uh, shortly after joining the organization, after we set our our explicit strategy around racial equity, we had some internal goals around where we wanted to shift. You know, at that time, I came into the organization with a predominantly white board. Uh, if yeah. we fast forward to today, four year almost four and a half years later, um, that board is now majority BIPOC, and yes. so we have right. lots of different voices and representatives. The same thing in terms of our Staff, You know, at the time, it was a predominantly white staff, um, predominantly white executive or leadership team that was reporting to the CEO. And again, over time, you know, and then the pandemic happened and, you know, there were shifts and changes. But uh, we now have a, a BIPOC majority leadership team of women of color um, and. And it doesn't say we're all women of color. We, we have white representation and it's just more blended now. And yeah. we're able to hold space and have different conversations around, um, what's happening in our community, uh, bringing that lived experience as an offering, right? And, and, um, to, to help, uh, support our sector. And so that, that's just kind of a very demographic representation, but it's very tangible as yeah. well. What that shift has also done is model that these um, structural shifts are possible uh, for our clients as well. And so, as I you know started out the podcast sharing, um, shortly after um, George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor, like all of the national re- racial reckoning. You know, we started seeing corporations, foundations, nonprofits, all issue very powerful equity statements. Mm -hmm. What we haven't seen as much of is how those statements have actually been operationalized into action in their organization. So that really is that next step. And and that's what Mission Capital is, is here to do as well, to help folks kind of think through strategy and how how do we help our organizations develop the equity, understanding, language, muscle, um, to do the work differently.
1: One of the conversations we've had here on the podcast a couple of times when it comes to operationalizing some of these, what I routinely refer to as sort of these higher aspirations, I think there's been a lot of, I think a lot of the outcomes of the last couple of years since the Say you know, since the pandemic and everything that has transpired in our world since then, these higher aspirations. But when it comes to operationalizing, um, a say say, just just the simple just the simple aspiration of wanting to have a more diverse donor pool, are you familiar? Because that's got to be in the mix, right? You want more. You know, I remember when I was Madge when I was working, and I've I've shared these stories before with my my other guest. When I was at the Epilepsy Foundation in Washington, uh, I had a wonderful time working for Danielle. Danielle was a woman of color. We traveled the country, and we learned all those dynamics of me being a junior employee and her being a leader, her being a woman, and her being a Black mm-hmm. woman. We we navigated all of that. But one of the things that we were constantly also navigating after the meetings was all the donors basically look like me, yeah. you know, and that conversation, you know, as two people who were very forward with our experiences and we like to, you know, analyze and perhaps overanalyze everything that we just experienced, the donors always look like me. The donors very rarely look like her. Yeah. I mean, how, yeah. what's your thought? Where are we going to go? Where are we going to, how are we going to get there? Um, and can we get there? Is there are, there? are there faster paths? Are there braver paths that we may, maybe need to go down?
2: hmm. That's a great question, Justin. You know, I'm really encouraged by what I've seen in our local community in Central Texas, which is this emergence of identity based donor networks. And so many years ago, oh, wow, okay. probably 20 over 20 years ago, I was part of uh, a group of um, young uh, Latino professionals um, yeah. who established a, a giving circle called Futuro Fund, and it was. Uh, a group of colleagues who came together we were all probably mid mid career level and um at a at a place where we had a little bit of disposable income we wanted to be more philanthropic with our dollars we also because of our own lived experience um felt like the sector needed uh, support in terms of uh, one, being more explicit about how it was serving the Latino community. We wanted to see we asked questions in our application, our, our mini grant application around the diversity of board members as well as executive leadership. So that was over 20 years ago that this group was meeting and kind of pooling their funds together and then um, sharing and investing grants in the community. Since then, there have been other uh, groups that have evolved um, like the new philanthropist, which I believe, I think you might be interviewing one of our yes. colleagues, the executive yes. director, Paulina yes. Paulina. yes. And so Paulina and her team have been working really hard at really diversifying this pipeline of philanthropists and donors and helping them kind of navigate what you just described with your colleague, when they might be um, one of the first um, board members on a board who's a person of color, or if they're, you know, coming together with philanthropists and there may be less than 5% of the room. And so, so we're, t- we're, we're really, you know, just creating a community for, again, folks to be their glorious selves, to bring their lived experience, their perspectives and their dollars and, yeah. and to, um, and to to lovingly also kind of share what our community aspirations and um, expectations might be as we all invest in, in this community.
1: Okay, Madge. So I know, I'm guessing we get 150 to 200 downloads on this, on the total library of this podcast uh, every day. So we've got a lot of listeners. And uh, there's a, let's say there's a 26-year-old Latino young woman <laughs> who's decided that fundraising Is is uh, and and honestly, this will be the first time this question's been posed. What does she need to know about who she is and where she's at in the world to know that she's particularly well suited for this kind of work?
2: Hmm. You know, that's a great question.
1: I've had lots of people as you simmer on this. So I've had yeah. lots of people on the show. I've had plenty of women on the show and I've had women, black women for example on the show. But uh I'm thinking about a conversation I had with Armando. Armando is a gentleman and advocate for the Latino community in Los Angeles, but I I got to say, you know, that's the smallest I that Latino community's not been very well represented in the three hundred plus episodes, and that's what he would he would say on the Mac. You know, when he's looking at uh, what his critique would be, is that we have so few in the Latino community doing this philanthropic work. Right. So, what are you saying? What are you saying to the, to the people that are listening to that conversation that I had with him, and to the people who are listening to this conversation? Um, is there is there something that they need to know that makes them uh, particularly well suited?
2: Hmm. well, you know, Jason, I always you know love asking more curious questions rather than providing <laughs> answers.
1: because
2: I do believe um uh, I
1: mean, isn't the uh, isn't the decolonizing wealth guy: um, Yes you know, at you know, level yes, i mean he's he's certainly raised the now he, but he's not on the um his conversation is sort of on the giving money away. Sort of right, right, um, but but I I I'm I'm so somewhat embarrassed, but this is what podcasters do. We're just not having this conversation. Right. with individuals who want to be in fundraising roles or even executive director roles, like yourself, right? You're rare.
2: Well, the the curious question that I was going to mention, it, you know, for folks who are, are out there thinking about, gosh, you know, why don't we have enough, you know. Uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx, you know, youth or young yeah. professionals in the sector. I think the question is one for, for us to ask ourselves, why not? Um, right. Do they yeah. not right. exist? I don't believe that's true because I, I know that that in the past has been kind of for some um, a reflection that folks have had when they're looking for executive directors or CEOs. And I know plenty who are in the seat and or interested to serve. So it's not, in my opinion, an issue of the pool. I I think it's figuring out what are the conditions that are going to really invite and entice uh, Latino uh, or a Latina professional to go into fundraising. What are the barriers? I don't know. I mean, at least in the nonprofit sector, I just cited some of the race to lead research that we've been doing, wondering if your sector uh, or our sector, because, you know, as a CEO, I'm a chief fundraising officer myself, but yes, wondering I if the fundraising environment has really um, gone inward to do an assessment of itself to ask, what are our demographics, whether it's, you know, race, age, gender, sexual orientation, what is that disability? What does that look like? And yeah. where do we need to close those gaps? And then what do we need to do to get there? That, those would be my curious questions uh, yeah. for us to explore.
1: Yeah, as I'm thinking back on that conversation I had with Armando, part of what his critique was, or, or part of what his uh, message was, was that um, a, a lot of us, um, a lot of the conversation, and I think that I think we we actually had a conversation about Edgar's book, is 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 very much oriented towards the flow of money. Coming from large foundations, for example, and what Armando is right. trying to do is persuade individuals in the Latino community like yourself to get into leadership roles and in major gifts roles. He's a major gifts guy and mm-hmm. he's like, learn how to take people out to lunch, learn how to, you know, learn how to, you know, learn how to, you know, learn how to relate to people in, um, you know, human to human lunch table type settings, which is one of the things we're constantly talking about here on the podcast is just being human and being, you know, just like the conversations Danielle and I had when we were meeting with donors um, and not being, uh, uh, you know, so focused on the institutional flows where, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of times, a lot of the criticism about the way that philanthropy works is that it, mm-hmm. you know, it's the institutionalized and the, applications and the processes and stuff. Um,
2: yeah. And I also think there's conversations. room. Yeah. And I think there's, I think there's a lot of room for the sector. That's all of us to also acknowledge power dynamics that are just entrenched in philanthropy and, yeah. and in donor, you know, donor relations and be able to challenge those in a really loving way. Uh, There's there is very much a power differential. I feel it every time I go in to ask a major donor or a foundation for an investment or a gift. And as I shared, you know, in a previous life, I actually worked at a foundation. So I know the institution. I worked both at a a philanthropic foundation and then a corporate banking foundation. So I understand the game. And um, I also acknowledge because I worked in institutions that there are practices, legacy, kind of white dominant practices of power and privilege that don't serve community. And so it's up to all of us working together to acknowledge when those are kind of bubbling up and then to figure out, to your point, how do we just have a conversation and, and break bread together and talk about this is a community issue we want to solve, whether it's, you know, homelessness or trying to support K through 12 education. How do we all rally around it? Um, And so, you know, Edgar Villanueva, the author of uh, Decolonizing Love, also talks about the importance of trust. Um, And he talks about how money is a tool, right, to reflect the obligations people develop to each other as they interact. So that in and of itself kind of levels the playing field. So we just need to remember that.
1: I remember maybe you've had this experience either at your previous role or the one you're in now. I remember being at tables with wealthy white donors. And I knew that, I mean, the the power dynamic was there for no other reason because they were super wealthy, right? You knew that that they had that. I mean, that's where the power oftentimes is. But sitting there oftentimes having a conversation with a very eloquent, smart woman like my boss, Danielle, um, she intimidated the hell out of some of those donors. They're just as uncomfortable as we are sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that. yeah, that's interesting. And that goes back to the trust piece of just basic relationship building, right? Yeah. Just being able to one bring bring one's full self, uh, whether you're a woman of color or a white person, talk about what's important to you, establish that relationship, and uh, hopefully, as that that relationship is being cultivated, be able to have you know this this really honest conversation um about what might be needed um even if it means talking about power in the room um right. which right. i know most folks are not used to having that conversation especially folks who have power like even right. me as, as a ceo right. uh as a woman of color ceo I, i've been trying to be more mindful and self-aware of the positional power i hold you know, even within my own organization as I'm, you know, um, working with, with my team, teammates and staff, I think about it also when I'm out in the community, um, when I'm, um, mentoring, you know, like that's just something that I um, that I've learned with you know through our work together and then my staff have taught me that, that positional power is a thing as well.
1: Is is part of the mission at Mission Capital to kind of create is part of what we're doing here with this roadshow coming up to kind of create that space where messiness and
2: Yeah, it, it is. It is it is it's it's capacity building, you know, at its best yeah, I think. Right, right. And one of the things we've been trying to work on and that we do offer is just kind of creating the conditions for brave spaces. We don't call them safe spaces. It's brave spaces, right? So we can all exercise that sense of of courage. So that means talking about implicit bias, that we all carry implicit bias regardless of who we are and how, and and examining when does that show up? How does that show up? Um, We're also folding that into, for example, our consulting engagements. Um, You know, as we're helping a board look for its next leader you know, on the front end, we talk about implicit bias in the hiring process and recruiting, and how it shows up, in you know, in wor- in the world, and that way we can help mitigate those biases and just be really mindful and, and set up, you know, systems and processes for calling people in if we feel like you know we're we're leaning on the bias side, um, and and in addition to kind of actually having workshops on implicit bias so that we're learning about that. We're also, we've also had workshops on um, just kind of the racial history of our community. So one of the offerings that we've um, had at Mission Capital is Austin's compounding um, racism, structural racism, and really understanding our history here in Central Texas and how it's evolved, um, why we have certain districts that were, you know, historically considered, you know, Latino, Mexican districts or Black districts, and, and, and how economic development and has uh, played a part in that over time. And now, you know, we have this vibrant community that everybody wants to move to, one of the best, hottest cities in Austin, yet we're still seeing this tale of two cities. Um, and that's because of kind of the structural decisions, the systemic decisions uh, that were ba- race-based that were made. And so now we're grappling with how do we create co- community solutions, acknowledging our history, but reimagining the future.
0: Going
1: back to your original question and, go, and, and just kind of reflecting on the myriad of, again, going back to this idea of this high, these higher aspirations that I think a lot of us within the fundraising space are talking about, one of the things that I think is sort of consistently there in the conversation is that fundraisers are going to have to become increasingly courageous and confident, brave, to use your word brave. About being willing to drive the conversation. And that, that's kind of the, you know, and, and, and I think back to the, the, the original question that you posed, the idea, well, what if, you know, what if we began to design and organizations started to more reflect the actual communities that they serve? Um, organizations, when it comes to their donors are going to have to let, they're going to have to have the courage to drive the conversation. I, as a white guy who've sat across the table for my entire career from white people, could, for the most part, drive the conversation because my privilege allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. But whoever's on the receiving side, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your your sort of your reflection on that thought that. That whoever's in the receive on the receiving side on our side of the table is going to have to conjure up the courage to drive the conversation, perhaps in ways that historically some of this donor centered and wonky wonk. Mm-hmm. This isn't about customer service. I had a, I had a gal on here one time, Madge say you know her job was to be a concierge for the rich and famous and i thought that's bullshit that's not your job you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? um and she was as white as i am but so this had nothing to do with you know this this was not a bico- BIPOC conversation but um you know what i'm saying do you follow i right do, do. you got and to I'm have just- the nerve to drive this things in some yeah
2: way. And that's why I'm really also encouraged about some of the these other emergent groups that, for example, our board member Michelle Flores Vren is a part of. This community-centric fundraising, yes, and so yes. it's national. We have a Texas chapter. Michelle's part of our our Texas group, and we're doing she it is, here in yes. Central Texas. So, so there is this really incredible pivoting happening, and yeah. uh, pivot happening and in, in fundraising around how do we get back to community and mission focus and have it not be about the donor. Cause although we do appreciate donors and and philanthropic funders and their investments, it's all about the mission and the work. And we all just need to remember why we're here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This writing project that all my listeners or any of my regular listeners have been hearing about, we've got to figure out how to, you know, get the donor to the table and we've, they've got to feel safe and comfortable and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, but I, think, I think so much of fundraising is premised on consumer logic, the idea that mm-hmm. the customer is king, et cetera, et cetera, um, which is completely bad theory for what we do in the nonprofit sector. Um, and I think that I think some of the work that the, our friends at CCF and others are trying to do is we're trying to basically unravel a century's worth of expertise that says, you know the, the donor, yeah, the donor's a you know a fair, Partner at the table, and the I, I use the word citizen. They're a citizen. They're a citizen, a member of the community, but, but they're not the king, and they're not the customer. You
2: know, right? The community is the customer. How yeah. beautiful is that?
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And just yeah, flip the, the switch. Yep.
1: When I was in my job in college, I'm, I'm reminded when these conversations happen. You know, when I was in college, I worked at Sears and, you know, the customer was always right. Yeah. You know, and so when I, I've thought through that these last couple of years, I thought, how many of us in this fundraising space, whoever we happen to be, have sort of bought into that idea that the customer's always right and sort of applied it to our fundraising practices? And, um, and I, and I don't think, Madge, and tell me if you, if you agree with me on this, I don't think our donors come to the lunch table nearly as often with, with an awareness or a, I don't think they know where the hell they want to go with their charitable giving. You know what I mean?
2: Right, right. Well, and that's why our job is really important, right? As nonprofit leaders um, who are hopefully, you know, rooted in community, in relationship with community, we can be a guide. Uh, to share with donors and other, you know, philanthropic funders and investors, where they can um, support the work, but that's that's part of our job. Um, yeah, to work in tandem with folks.
1: Madge, it has certainly been a pleasure to have this conversation here today. You and I are going to have the pleasure of, of uh, enjoying lunch together here in a couple of weeks when yes. I'm in town. We're going to be hosting. Uh, tell us a little bit so that the event uh, is is being hosted Friday. Uh, Friday, uh, uh, geez, Friday, September sixteenth. Yeah. <laughs> give the specifics if you don't mind, so that because you know exactly where we're going to be.
2: Absolutely, Jason. We're so excited to to welcome you all and co-host you um, in Austin on Friday, September sixteenth, um, and that will be at Mobile Loaves and Fishes, one of our uh, nonprofit uh, community partners here in town that's doing amazing work in helping uh, to provide. Uh, transitional housing for the in-house. They've got a beautiful campus uh, in East Austin, and uh, will be receiving us there to learn more about this important topic, how we can all be responsive um, with um, fundraising and and through our nonprofit work.
1: Madge, it has certainly been a pleasure. I look forward to being with you in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, uh, have have a wonderful afternoon, and you're always welcome back.
0: Thank you. Take care, Jason. It's been a pleasure.